Pranasam. So we return to Shamatha. And I've commented many times in the past something I firmly believe, and that is shamatha can be well understood or put into a framework or classified as what I would call contemplative technology. It's not a matter of whether it's true or false. It's a matter of whether it works or not. Because it's really that. It's, does it work or not? And so there's no such thing as a pure... What is, what is a pure sometimes people speak of pure dharma, impure dharma. I'm not going to debate that. But the notion of pure, medit- pure shamatha method versus impure shamatha method, that's like a pure way of developing a, a laser versus an impure way of developing, or a pure way to bake a cake and an impure. Maybe that's not a good example. You could throw dirt into it. But you know what I'm getting at. It's just a matter of does it work or not? Does it make the mind serviceable? And so it's technology in the sense that make your mind serviceable, reliable, so that when you're making an observation, you have confidence and a reality-based confidence that what you are witnessing is something really that is reality revealing itself to you and not just some projection, fantasy, delusion, what have you. So really that point, uh, to be a little bit, I don't think simplistic, I think we're just simple. It's a major reason the introspection of movement collapsed, failed, completely failed in the West. 1875, 1910, that was pretty much its longevity. They thought, well, let's study the mind from a first-person perspective, introspectively. They had no shamatha, none at all. They had not a clue. Even the great William James didn't think attention could be developed, could be trained, you know, because he saw no evidence. What can you do? And so, if you and if you, so, if you don't have a mind that is stable, that's clear, then why on earth would you, uh, you know, place a lot of credence in your observations? when your observations, whether internal or external, can be so clouded, veiled, confused with your projections, your biases, and so forth and so on. So it's, the shamatha really has a dual aspect to it. And I'll use a little bit elegant terms, epistemic, epistemic, about knowing that we're refining, refining our mental awareness, our attention skills, executive control, nice term, so that when we're making observations, we can do, we can make valid, sophisticated, replicable observations that other people with comparable training can replicate for themselves. Right? And they may be bold insights. So on the one hand, epistemic, that we can really start using introspection as a rigorous, sophisticated, and replicable mode of observation. It doesn't exist in modern psychology, not as a sophisticated mode of observation. It's, it, it's ignored, it's avoided, it's marginalized, but they never use it mainstream, as William James pleaded that they should. So the one hand, epistemic, uh, and then the other one is, you can call it therapeutic or pragmatic, and that is the practice of shamatha when done well. It's healing. It calms a troubled mind. It relieves anxiety and depression and nervousness and boredom and so forth. It brings about, well, with the with the dissipation, with the subduing of the five obscurations and the natural emergence of the five dhyana factors, it's really a path to exceptional mental health and balance. It's not a standalone practice, but boy, it's a pretty important feature. So those two, and then those two are not simply two independent variables, as if they're just kind of two totally independent, you know, emergences from, but the more mentally balanced, healthy, clear, serene, focused you are, of course that mind's going to be very good epistemically, and the more sharp you are, stable, vivid, and all of that, that's going to enhance your mental health and well-being. So the two are profoundly interrelated. So, and, but having said that, 
So it's all a matter about does it work or not. That's really it. So it's whether it's a Hindu technique or a, a Christian technique or a technique from modern psychology. You know, they can come up with methods. Maybe they're very useful. They're, they're working right now on feedback devices. The head of one corporation gave me one, a little EEG band put on your forehead. It's quite cute, actually. It's very, you know, it's rather stylish. Um, with four little EEG nodes on it to try to pick up your, you know, your, your brain waves. It's EEG. And it's, and, it's, and it's interactive. Uh, and the whole idea is maybe this can give you a little boost. I spoke with the CEO of the, of the corporation at MIT a couple, a couple months ago. She said, you know, we're not, we're not suggesting in creating this and marketing this that this is going to be a substitute for deep meditative practice, but a little leg up, a little, a little helper to get people in stride when their minds are so whacked out, you know, with restlessness and so forth. So... It's a very early stage of technology. I think the, the, the jury's out, whether it's really beneficial or not. But I think it's well-motivated. And there's nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with it at all. And so having said that, uh, and we're about to go to a... I'm going to introduce a little method that might be helpful. But having said that, in the practice, in the course of practicing shamatha, and then, when one eventually achieves shamatha, might you not only achieve this fine technology of a very balanced, clear, finely honed, sharp mind, which could be then useful epistemically, and also a wonderful degree of mental balance, mental health, but might you, in the course of your practice, also make some legitimate discoveries? You know, just by the by. And the answer is, yeah, yeah. Especially if you're focusing on an element of reality that's already there, like consciousness. Might you have a clear and clear experience, insight, knowledge of what consciousness is the old-fashioned way, by gazing at it, examining it very, very carefully for a long time. And might you have some very strong insights coming out of that that get a strong conviction of what consciousness is and is not. So I make no claims about that I've realized some high degree of anything. So if I make no claims, then you can't refute me. You know. uh, I just make no claims at all. But I would say it's something like 40,000 hours I've spent in meditation, something like five years in solitary. Uh, it wasn't punishment, you know, it was voluntary. Uh, <laughs> but when I sometimes, and I think I do err. I know I, I know, I know I don't think. I know I do err. Sometimes just get a bit too pejorative. That's just because I'm so exasperated and tired of like, when's it ever going to stop? You know, I read the media day after day mind-brain interchangeably, train your brain, your brain's doing this, brain's doing that. And they said, oh, would you please cut the crap? You know, this is pseudo pseudoscientific bullshit. Oh, I'd be a bit pejorative. I think I might be. You know, like, you know, please, at least you're going to say that. Show some evidence that it's true, you know, and they don't. And when you do have some glimmering, I think I'm not entirely in the dark about the nature of consciousness. You know, they're just barking up the wrong tree. You know, they just got it fundamentally wrong. And it's hard to be respectful of a view that you know is just fundamentally delusional. As much as I respect many people hold that view. Right? I know people with cancer. I respect them as human beings. I don't respect cancer. And so forth. TB. It's a disgusting disease. But people who have it can be totally noble individuals. People who, I regard materialism as more like a mental disease than something not to be refuted but to be healed. I really do. Sorry. And so the question comes, can legitimate discoveries be made through such practice as settling the mind in its natural state? Awareness of awareness, merging mind with space. The answer is definitely yes. So to quote Lama Zupadramuchi, I've quoted it before on this point, 
He was asked once, is it necessary to believe in reincarnation to achieve enlightenment? He said, no. no. You need to know reincarnation. You need to know it for yourself. You need to investigate it. Not just believe. Belief is cheap. Frankly, belief is cheap. You read something in the newspaper, some scientist discovered such and such. Oh, cool, I believe that. That was easy. That was easy. But then knowing it is something else. So, there we are. So now a little technique. Uh, it's a, definitely a, uh, an optional. It's not integral to the practice, but many of the yogis of the past, for many hundreds of years now in Tibet, and I'm sure it goes back to India, have taught this practice. And I just received some, uh, this past spring when I was in Bhutan, I received some really crystal clear instruction on it by a man who had spent nine years in retreat, and that is Gangten Tugurumache. And it's the practice some of you are familiar with, but I thought I'd teach it, because many people find it helpful. And if you don't, don't worry about it, just set it aside, because this is technology. If it doesn't work, then why do it? We're not here to do a ritual that doesn't give any benefit. And so the practice is called in Tibetan, Lungrogutuk, Lungrogutuk, the ninefold expulsion of residual prana, stale, stale prana. That's what it is, you know? And it's very often practiced by yogis, uh, especially in the Tibetan tradition. Uh, when you're just first starting, first sitting down, you may do this before you do any other kind of devotional practices like we did this morning. You may do it right afterwards. It's your choice. Uh, but I thought we'd just do it once. Just do it once. And probably not here again, because it's a little tiny bit noisy, you know? Uh, and so if a few people are doing it, others not, then you'll be kind of like, you know, be startled by other people. It sounds like they're blowing their noses, you know. Um, and so do it, you know, we'll do it once here. And then beyond that, if you'd like to do it in your own room, that's fine. And if you don't find it helpful, as I said, don't worry about it. It's not essential. But it's called the Lungrojukut, as I mentioned. And for this one, you really want to be sitting upright. You do not want to be lying down. Not so useful. And so what I'll do, I think, why don't we just do it entirely before the session? And then we'll just do the straight session, okay? So I'll talk about it a tiny bit first, but just the instruction. Uh, and so, you're sitting upright, and this, putting your, um, your thumbs at the base of the ring finger, it's said that somehow there's some kind of a, a flow of prana related to kleshas through the ring finger. And this gives a little bit of block. I have no idea whether that's true or not, but I was told that by Gantan Tukurumache, so I'm not going to refute it. So you put your, in both hands, you put your thumb at the base of the ring finger, and then you close your fingers around it. It's called the Vajra Fist, right? And so then you can just place both hands on your knees if you like. And then the, the ninefold expulsion of residual prana, or air, entails, first of all, you just uh, take, you make your right index finger straight, pointing it. And then when you're doing the practice, you first close the left nostril, and you breathe in. Now you're not settling breath in the natural, natural rhythm. You breathe in slowly but deeply, almost a full capacity. You do that, and now I'm going to give you the whole, the, the enriched version. And you can follow the enriched version if, you're, if it resonates with you, if you like doing it. If you don't like doing it, the enriched version, you could do a simpler version. The enriched version is with visualization. It's good. They wouldn't teach it otherwise. But you can also do it without the visualization. And that's also fine. Okay? Or not do it at all. So here it is. So we have this. You breathe in through the, through the right nostril as you block the nest, left nostril. And if you'd like to do the enriched version, then you, as you're breathing in, you imagine the blessings of all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in the form of a light blue light. A light blue light. And it comes into your right nostril, comes up and around, up, up into the head, then around. It does a U-turn. goes down through the center of your torso, down below the navel. 
And then like one sleeve tucked into another sleeve, you imagine that the right, the right, the right nadi, or channel, is tucked into the left one, and so you breathe in through the right, breathe in through this, breathe in this light blue light, and breathing, of course, as usual, down into the belly. And then as you're breathing out, then you just bring the right, your right index finger over, block the right nostril, and then you just gently, fully breathe out through the left nostril. And as you're breathing out, then you breathe out, obviously bring it, breathing the air out, but you visualize this as red light, as red light, and symbolizing the mental affliction of craving and attachment. Okay? So light blue light in through the right nostril, red light out through the left nostril, and, you, and as you're breathing, then you imagine that the, the prana is coming through that left channel, up and around and out through the left nostril, and then just dissipating into space, but in the form of red light. So you do that three times. So, so let's do it. Yeah, I'm going to talk through the whole thing. It's not that complicated, and you can remember it. So it's three times, breathing in through the right, out through the left, in through the right, out through the left, three times. And then, again, your, your right hand, your, your left hand, I'm sorry, left hand just remains there, just resting on your knee. And then you lock the right nostril. You're breathing in, breathing down into the belly, breathing in fully, and once again it's this light blue light coming in, up and around, down through the left channel. Now the sleeve tucked into the right channel, and then it's coming up through the up through the right up through the right channel, out through the right nostril. It's breathing in once again the light blue, and then breathing out white light, symbolizing anger, aggression, hatred, hostility, that whole package. Okay? So in through the left, light blue, out through the right. White coming out, dissolving into space. Oh. And so that's three times. Okay? And then finally, so this is nine folds, we've just done six. So finally, then you're just you're just breathing in deeply, just breathing in through both both nostrils, but this time once again, you imagine this light blue light coming in, around. And now the two side sleeves are tucked into the middle, the avaduti, the, the middle channel, the middle nadi. They're both tucked into there. And so you're breathing in this, breathing in this light blue light, and then what? And then as you're breathing out through the central channel, up and around and out through both nostrils, then you are breathing out kind of dust-colored, dust-colored light, so grayish light, just the color of dust. That, of course, symbolizes ignorance and delusion. But now here's the final point, and that is you're coming to the, you're, you're finishing the, uh, and you have to see this uh, visually, and I'll try to, and for people listening by podcast, I'll simply describe it. And that is, you're coming to the, the final ninth breath. You just breathe in, and then you're breathing out. And when you come to the, right towards the end of your final exhalation in this ninefold breathing, breathing out, then you go. <laughs> the hands, which were in the Vajra fist, both of them, they just go straight out, the fingers straight out. And then you, from your belly, you just really forcefully ex- expel, really kind of like completely, like just like squeezing a sack and having all the air come out. Just <laughs> breathing out through the nostrils. Forcefully expel it. And that's kind of like the final cleansing or expulsion of old air or old residual prana. The word is roh in Tibetan, which means corpse, corpse breath. Sounds pretty, sounds pretty awful. But it's just old, stale, residual, blocked energy. And this whole idea is to expel that completely. And so it's just nine breaths, and then you go right into your main practice. 
So uh, I'd like to do the practice then with no talking through it. So conceptually, is that clear? Yeah? So if you just remember, the first one is to block the left, and then everything else will flow, right? It's blocking the left, and then blocking the right three times, then no blocking, both hands just resting on the knees in the Vajra, vajra fist until the end of the final uh, exhalation, and then the forceful expulsion. It's all clear? Yes, Michael. In three times. Red light symbolizing attachment, and then white symbolizing anger, and then dust symbolizing, yeah, the three poisons. All clear? Good. Okay, let's do that first, and then when we finish, then I'll sound the timer, and then we'll just go into the main practice, okay? All good? So let's begin now. Then just breathe normally afterwards. And now let's begin the session. If you'd like to go supine, now is the time.
once you've learned how to settle body, speech, and mind in the natural state, you may find you can do it quite quickly, quite naturally, step by step. And the culmination of that process is where your body is at ease, still and vigilant. Your breathing unimpeded, effortless. Your mind at ease, your awareness still. Ready to be put to use, ready to focus on whatever you wish to focus on. Or you may just let it stay at home. Dushumlingpa says that when you achieve shamatha, there's a sense of well-being, like sitting by a warm fire, by a warm fire on a cold winter night. So to extend that a little bit, imagine this unflickering candle flame, the source of illumination of your awareness, illuminating the space of your mind, as you're simply resting there, quiet, clear, alert, very much at rest, at ease, loose, so that thoughts don't pick you up and carry you away. Just for a moment, let's have a visualization of sitting there in your warm cabin, a nice warm fire burning away, but wind howling outside, rain pattering against the window panes. You don't have to especially focus on the sound of the wind or the, the rain on the windows. It comes to you. Right? It's there on the periphery of your cabin. You're aware of it. You don't have to focus on it. It impinges upon your awareness. So likewise, when you're just resting your awareness in its own place, not directing your attention here or there, within this space of your awareness. The rhythm of the breath impinges upon your awareness without you giving any special effort. You're aware when the breath is flowing in, when it's flowing out. With no particular directionality, no special effort. So while primarily resting your awareness in stillness in its own place, clearly cognizant, give just enough attention to the rhythm of the breath such that when it is long, you note that it's long. When it's short, you note that it's short. But with no commentary, no conceptualization needed. It's so simple. You don't need to think about it or label it. You already know it before the conceptualization or labeling occurred. Set the rhythm of relaxing deeply, more and more deeply with every outbreath, and gently arousing and focusing your awareness, stabilizing your awareness with each in-breath.
quickly check up on your face and especially the eyes, the muscles around the eyes. See that it's all soft and relaxed. See that there's no impediment to the breathing. Unimpeded, in and out, effortlessly. And now let's continue in the practice silently for the remainder of the session.
bonus. So rather than reading further in the Vajra Essence, let alone the Natural Liberation, I thought I'd just read one very short passage about mindfulness of breathing, this time from Mahayana source. Uh, we've not had time for a couple of days now to have any extended time for discussion, question and answer. So I thought we'd leave some time for that today. And then tomorrow we'll finish off the section in the Vajra Essence and then move on what were they? Wednesday. Then move into natural liberation and the presentation there. So I mentioned earlier that the teaching of mindfulness of breathing has, is taught not only in the Pali Canon, not only strongly emphasized in the Theravada tradition, but it's also found in the Mahayana. And here's a nice, a nice simple quote. It's from the Perfection of Wisdom Sutra in 10,000 stanzas, or 10,000 verses. So in this one, it's um, the Buddha says, Shariputra, speaking to his great disciple, take the analogy of a potter or a potter's apprentice spinning the potter's wheel. If he makes a long revolution, he knows it is long. If he makes a short revolution, he knows it is short. Shariputra, similarly, a bodhisattva, a great being, mindfully breathes in, mindfully breathe out. If the inhalation is long, he knows the inhalation is long. If the exhalation is long, he knows the exhalation is long. If the inhalation is short, he knows the inhalation is short. If the exhalation is short, he knows the exhalation is short. Sounds familiar? Shariputra, thus a, a bodhisattva, a great being, by dwelling with introspection and with mindfulness, eliminates avarice and disappointment toward the world by means of non-objectification. And he lives observing the body as the body internally. That last sentence is a, a special, very rich bonus. It's not there in the Pali Canon that I've seen anyway. I'm no Pali Canon specialist. But dwelling with introspection and mindfulness, there you know, you all know, those are the two, your two primary faculties that you're utilizing and refining in the practice of shamatha. And then you use them, you really use them, and in the process refine them further as you venture into vipassana, whether the four applications of mindfulness or any other type. Right? But he says, by dwelling with introspection and mindfulness, such a being eliminates avarice and disappointment towards the world by means of non-objectification, very rich and obviously lends itself to multiple interpretations, but I think it's worth a few minutes because it's, I do find it enormously meaningful. Avarice. Avarice is this craving, this clinging, this grasping for stuff outside in the world. That would make me happy. I wish I, wish I had that. I wish I had that. Basically disempowering ourselves, empowering other people, places, objects and stuff, thinking that will make me happy. Because after all, I look in my own in my own resources, and I got nothing, but maybe you can help, you know? And then we don't get it, or we're hoping, hoping, hoping. And so, so for example, wealth, oh, if I only had more money, I'd be so much happier, and then the avarice comes from that. And then we don't get it, because not everybody who strives for wealth succeeds, right? Then you don't get it. Disappointment. Or you do get it. And some people really enjoy their wealth. And if they don't expect too much from it, they can continue to enjoy it for the rest of their life. But if they really were thinking, that's going to make me happy, then it's one of those lose-lose situations. You have disappointment if you don't get it, and then disappointment if you do get it. And so how many rich people are there that are just living on Prozac, or other kind of antidepressants and so forth? And I say that with no, I hope you know, no condescension anything. If I hadn't met llamas, I think I'd be a wreck or dead. Speaking very seriously. I'd be a wreck or dead. 
I couldn't stand it. Right? So if I have any greater insight than rich people who are living on Prozac, that's not because I'm smarter. Just more fortunate. Met wonderful teachers, wonderful dharma. That's the only reason. So if I feel anything, the only realistic response is simply gratitude. Because there's nothing special here. I'm just one more smart guy. Big deal. A dime a dozen smart dudes. And so by dwelling with introspection and mindfulness and this practicing mindfulness of breathing and simply note, he gave that nice analogy, the potter's wheel, long, short, and so forth, so simple, that it eliminates avarice and disappointment towards the will by means of non-objectification. That can be understood in two ways, at least, a couple of interpretations. Non-objectification. Where can I go that will make me happy? Who can I meet? Who can I partner up with? What can I own? How can I look? What kind of reputation might I have? How many people could love me? If more people loved me, admired me, appreciated and acknowledged me, then I'd be happy. You know, tangibles and intangibles. You know, all of that. That objectification. That the source of my happiness, my fulfillment, my sense of meaning in life, it's out there somewhere. Somewhere. I've just got to find it. You know? That's objectification. Where you're totally missing the target. Barking up the wrong tree. You're looking in the wrong place. And this is why I feel frustrated when it comes to materialism. But the flip side of materialism is, of course, look outside because materialists only believe in matter and the emergent properties of matter. So where else are they going to look? In the inner resources of their own spirit, which they think is mere function of brain activity? You know, so it undermines any deep transformative spiritual practice. I weep. You see, what you see sometimes is exasperation, frustration, and I don't know what else. But it just comes out of sadness that people are looking in a place that's hopeless to understand their own minds, their own identity, and to find genuine happiness. It's hopeless. Hence, strong visceral reaction. There are people who believe that the universe is 7,000 years old. How often have you heard me refute that? Do I believe it? Not for a second. But big deal. Believe the universe is 7,000 years old. You know, that's not going to ruin your day. You just have a silly belief. So what? There are a lot of silly beliefs. They don't do much harm. It just kind of ups you out of the whole scientific worldview. But, you know, things could be worse. So objectification. Objectification, thinking that the source of one happiness lies outside. And then you're set up for, di- for avarice. Got to have it, got to have it. And then disappointment sooner or later. Even if you get it, how long are you going to keep it? You know, you get to be old age. You're going to lose it. Whatever you had, you're going to lose it. It's just a, a, a script for a tragedy. It always turns out that well, that way. You know? And so this then, it, what is the verb? He said, it eliminates avarice and disappointment towards the world by means of non-objectification. You're not looking outside for the source of your happiness, fulfillment, meaning, joy, and so forth and so on. It's not there to be found. You, you kind of woke up and smelled the daisies. You woke up and say, that's not the right place to look. If I'll ever find happiness, meaning, fulfillment, it's going to be by transforming my own mind, my way of life, fathoming the inner resources of my own spirit, you know, going down all the way to Buddha nature, perhaps. And then whether you're living like Genlam Rimba, living on, what, 10 kilos of brown flour, living under a rock for a couple of years and saying those were the happiest years of his life, I mean, that is desperate poverty. I mean, his belly wasn't bloated. Okay, it wasn't like that. It wasn't that intense, but nevertheless, it was filled with brown, brown flour. You know, 
So, and so happy, so, so happy. You know. So he looked in the right place. It's very simple, he looked in the right place. And he died of cancer so peacefully, gently, and then phew, into the clear light of death. Where's the tragedy? He didn't lose a battle with cancer. He saw his body was worn out. He said, okay, whatever. Got a, he's got a nice young one now. Nice new model. <laughs> seven-year-old, about seven years old or so forth. So there it is. It's so interesting, those mindfulness breathing. It's so simple. It's so fascinating. That if for 20 minutes a day you're going to retreat, a weekend retreat, a week-long retreat, eight-week retreat, longer, and you can get into the flow of mindfulness of breathing, it looks, on the one hand, so simple. It's almost like simple-minded. You don't have to have a high IQ to do it well, right? But if you can abide there and just be breathing in and breathing out, and, and again, not doping out, not spacing out, not getting dull, not just sitting there with a wandering mind, but actually doing the practice authentically. If you can slip into that and just have a sense of contentment, simply have a sense of contentment that uh, this is okay. Yeah, I'm not restless. I don't want to stop. There's a nice English phrase. It's peace of mind. There's an inner calm and inner serenity, and I prefer this to watching television, reading garbage, garbage stuff, you know, the mind, and junk food for the mind. I prefer this to other stuff. I'd rather just be present here and cultivating this inner balance and finding a very simple, gentle, nothing-to-write-home-about type of sense of well-being. You know? If you can do that, you've made a major step on the way to recovery from addiction to sensory stimulation, work, and so forth, which are the endemic addic addictions. Those are the ubiquitous. Some people are addicted to alcohol, some to drugs, some to sex, some to gambling. And they, then we have wonderful therapists to help them through that. It's a wonderful thing. No sarcasm at all. It's a wonderful thing. But the ubiquitous addiction is the addiction to that we always have to be active, stimulated, action stimulated, work, 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 entertainment, entertainment, comatose. Work, 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 entertainment, comatose. And, you know, and addiction to that, that cycle. Oh, I love Lily Tomlin. You know, even if you win the rat race, you're still a rat. <laughs> there it is. So you're kind of you're unratifying yourself by learning how to practice mindfulness of breathing. You're not scurrying around in a circle, panting away, panting away, making yourself breathless, you know, exhausting yourself in the addiction to activity, entertainment, stimulation, and so forth. And if you can be, find some sense of, just gentle sense of well-being, a sense of ease, a sense of looseness, a sense of inner calm, then we'll call that sukha. Sukha, a sense of well-being. Right. And then slowly, slowly or quickly, people differ. And out of that sense of, I'm enjoying this. I don't want the, I, I don't want the chime to go out. I hope it's not coming soon, the chime. Or, I've got a spare time. I've got, some, I could, I've got 15 minutes. Oh boy, got 15 minutes before the next appointment. Oh good. Oh boy. You'd rather do that than just, I don't know, piss away your time you know, on stuff that would give you no benefit whatsoever. Just, it was time killed. You know, just checking at surfing the internet for no particular reason, like, oh, what's up? You know, or something I refuse to do. And it's not, I, it's not superior, but Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. I won't have one because I'm going to die soon. I don't want to die checking out my Facebook. <laughs> I really don't. 
Although I know it's very meaningful, so I'm not being pejorative. It's just that I'm not into it. That's all. I'm an old geezer. I think I've just proven my geezerhood. So there it is. It eliminates avarice and disappointment towards the world by means of non-objectification. And finally, very simply, he lives observing the body as the body internally. For those of you, for those of you who know the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, the Buddha's great discourse on the four applications of mindfulness, you know that he says, attending to the body as the body, feelings as the feeling, the mind as the mind, phenomena as the phenomena, right? For each one. It's always there. It's a refrain. The body as the body, which means it's so simple, but it's also not trivial. You're experiencing the body as a body rather than experiencing it as you. Looking into the mirror and saying, oh, I'm looking good. Or, oh, I look terrible. Oh, I'm too fat. Oh, I'm too skinny. Oh, I'm getting old. I, 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 I. You're not seeing the body as a body. You're seeing the body as you. It's not. And then feelings. We do it all the time. The cognitive fusion with feelings. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling... I, 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 I. We're not seeing... We're not observing feelings as feelings. A total unconscious, involuntary, cognitive fusion with a feeling, and it's simply I feel... I, I am. I am happy, sad, depressed, what have you. And then mental states. The whole array of them. I'm thinking. I'm feeling. I'm hoping. I'm fearing. I'm... I'm, 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 we're not seeing feelings, we're not seeing mental states as mental, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. We're not seeing mental phenomena as mental phenomena. It's exactly what happens in a non-lucid dream. Exactly what happens in a non-lucid dream. Right. If you're having a dream and you recognize the dream as a dream, it's called a lucid dream. Right? If you're having a dream and you don't know it's a dream, then you're not recognizing the dream as a dream, which means you're in a non-lucid dream, which means you're fundamentally deluded. Bad idea. Right. And then finally, phenomena at large. You know. So he's, he's couching, as the Buddha does in the Pali Canon, he's couching the mindfulness of breathing within the context of the close application of mindfulness to the body internally. Now, externally, it's attending other people's bodies. Like Paul Lackman's marvelous work, attending to facial expression, being able to read, draw strong inferences about the emotions people are experiencing based upon these subtle movements of the, of the muscles in the face, right? That's attending to other. That's attending to the body as the body, externally, right? And then there is extent, ex- attending to the body, internally and externally, and that's observing the whole dynamic, of your own experience of your own body. This is so fascinating for you, wouldn't it be, Michael, with all your background and working working body, that I know you and many of us here are very sensitive to your own body, attending to it a lot. For the moment, what we attend to is reality. We're really attending to what is it to be embodied internally. You get a really good feel of that. And then if you're a behaviorist or other kind of people, maybe a therapist, you're really t- attending closely to other people's facial expressions, their tone of voice, how quickly they're speaking, their body language, facial expressions, and all of that. That's attending to the body as the body externally. Right? It's wonderful. Their science has made a lot of progress, with respect, I say. You know. But then there's this whole dynamic that we're not just these independent little pods, these little entities, that are bumping into each other once in a while. But rather in every, every dynamic. So Marta came, to, came for the meeting today, and there we were talking back and forth. She's, she's talking, I'm, ref- I'm talking back, as we always do. You know, nothing special. But there it is that my words, my body, my facial expression, my body language, and so forth, that's influencing her facial expressions, body language. She speaks, that's influencing mine. So then you see the dynamic, internally and externally. You're saying, whoa. These are not two things that just bump into each other. This is now a whole dynamic of two people having a conversation. 
And there's this mutual inter interdependence, inter-influence, you know. That I'm influencing her mental states, manifesting by way of facial expression, body language, and so forth. She, of course, is doing the same thing to me. So you have a system there, a system called a dialogue, a conversation between two people. But it's a system, it's an integrated system. Observing the body internally and externally, kind of hyphenated. Because it's not two things just got slapped together. In that context, these two people are rising relative to each other from moment to moment. And that's in any conversation, an argument, friendly conversation, talking with a policeman, a border, border customs patrol, and all that kind of stuff. Whatever it is, it's always there. So that's what the Buddha is getting at. But the final note on this is that as we can really cultivate this ability, attending to something that is not by nature really interesting and entertaining, arousing, novel, really cool, you know, which we'll pay for. That's what movies and music and television is for, are for, to entertain us, to arouse us, giving something novel, something we really enjoy, that something enjoyable is happening, just like tasting good food and so forth. Here we're attending to something that's not by nature painful, not by nature interesting, arousing, novel, and so forth. So therefore, we're not getting any hedonic feed, right? We're not getting something from the object that's, oh, I like that, don't stop. It's, well, I don't want to stop breathing, but it's not because it's so pleasurable, right? And so as we are turning off the valves of hedonic stimulation, just like turning the tap off, that you're not getting any. Nothing painful, you don't want this to be painful, but there's nothing really pleasurable there, like eating ice cream or something like that. So you've turned off the valve, just like that, on the hedonic stimulation, and now you're just getting even, neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And if a sense of well-being arises, and then over time, that sukha, and then pritti, pritti, the sense of enjoyment, and then that can eventually manifest as bliss, of course. If that arises, then you're well on the way to recovery. You know? Then you're really on the way, you're finding a path, you're moving towards a path, really towards a path. And you link that shamatha with vipassana, and then you find your path. And that's why I'm here. Find a path, help other people find a path. Yeah. So that's it. That's all I wanted to share with you this afternoon. We still have 25 minutes. So let's kind of, since this time is so precious for practice, we could be living in, down, in a downtown major city at a university. We can have all kinds of interesting conversations about philosophy of mind and this aspect of Buddhism, this school and that school, and this theory and that theory. And we can do that in the midst of a very busy, active way of life, taking out time and have a seminar and talk all the way through it, you know? So we don't need a special environment to have very interesting theoretical conversations. Not to say, and I'm not putting that down at all, I've spent a lot of time doing it myself, but now we're in this very special environment that is so conducive for practice. I mean, really extraordinarily conducive. So I'm not putting a ban, I'm not a, a, a language policeman, but let's li at least prioritize, let's put it that way, let's prioritize questions, topics of discussion, points of clarification, first of all, about practice, right? And then if we have some time left over, then we can always go to theory. It's useful, okay? But this is Padmasambhava's path. It's Pinjan path. Let your view come out of your practice rather than having years and years of training of the theory, 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 and having the theory come in and then finally get to meditation afterwards. Okay, Lasso. Questions, comments, observations, insights. We'll start with Rosa. Rosa. <laughs> um, could you elaborate?
elaborate a little bit on the answer um, Gertrude Rinpoche gave you about what to do with a noise, view it? View it, yeah. It was really almost like a koan. But I had been training with him for a couple of years by then, so it didn't, it, it didn't give me just what. It's kind of like, whoa, like that. He threw the arrow at the target and he hit bullseye. And what he was saying is, look, I, I don't remember how many months or years it was that I've been really training with him, translating for him. Pretty close encounter of a very good kind. Uh, with Gautrin and Bucci, when he, he just gave me that pith, like throwing a dart, you know? Uh, but I think probably a couple of years. And that means a couple of years of Dzogchen, because that's pretty much what he taught me all the way through. And so, view it, he was clearly referring to Dzogchen view. Okay, he taught me, he taught me, I translated orally, I probably, I probably done, started, I had, I started translating text by then. And so, he had really imparted, he'd shared, Padmasambhava and others' teachings on the Dzogchen view with me. Uh, it's not just something to believe in or to, or to remember, you know, to memorize, but it really is shifting your axis on the way you view reality. Right? Uh, so I'm not going to give now a whole teaching on the view of Dzogchen. I mean, Padmasambhava will. I'll try to pass that on you know, when we get to that in this eight-week retreat. But it's a way of viewing reality. Uh, where you're doing your very best to approximate viewing reality from the perspective of Rigpa. Insofar as you're viewing reality from the perspective of Rigpa, that is the Dzogchen view. The Dzogchen view is nothing more or less than that. So Jujum Lingba, for example, or Padmasambhava in the Vajra Essence said, uh, first of all, you must establish the view. You must gain some access to it. Meditation, Dzogchen meditation, specifically texture, is then nothing more than sustaining the view. So let's linger there just for a moment, because this is practice. It's looking ahead a bit, but the question, as, as Kim raised a couple of days ago, it's going to be a recurrent question. I mean, it's absolutely core. Uh, we can put, phrase it in different ways. What's the difference between shamatha without a sign, which we'll learn about very shortly, and some of you, many of you already know, what's the difference between that and Dzogchen meditation? What's the difference between substrate consciousness and rikpa? A lot of the words are similar. And sometimes wonderful lamas like Tsopni Rinpoche, his younger brother, his older brother, and so forth, they'll sometimes speak simply nature of mind, nature of mind. And then you kind of, okay, which aspect are you talking about? Is that substrate consciousness? Is it nature of your coarse mind? Because that's certainly worth looking into. Uh, is it ultimate nature of mind, emptiness? The emptiness of the inherent nature of the mind? Is it rigma? So sometimes it comes in a bundle. You know, sometimes it comes in a bundle. Nature of mind. But boy, I've not been on this one, one of his retreats. And so on. But boy, so many of my friends, Dharma friends, some of them are my students, go and they just deeply move, transformed. Something very, very meaningful takes place when giving pointing out instructions, right? And they get some insight there. You know? so, so when it comes to viewing, gaining access to the view, identifying the view, ascertaining the view, it comes to, with different phrases, I would say, because it just happened to come up in meditation this afternoon, I won't try to be inclusive as if I know all the ways that it can happen. I don't. But one thing that does happen, sometimes it happens spontaneously. It just, just happens. Go figure. Looking, why then? Why at that time? But then suddenly a breakthrough. And you really do have, as Gantian Ramachi said, you have some insight into an aspect of Rigpa. Not to say you fully realize it, but you've got something authentic. You've got something authentic. 
It was not other than Rigpa. Probably wasn't the full realization of Rigpa, but you've got something authentic. That's generally what happens when receiving pointing out instructions. Something authentic takes place. And so sometimes it happens spontaneously. What can you say? It does. It, but it does. You know. So that's one way. Another way is pointing out instructions. You know, From a person who has profound realization, skillful means, and knows how to transmit. They sometimes call it mind-to-mind transmission. Uh, but however one phrases it, whether it's often in a verbal teaching or a guided meditation, or there can be more extreme measures, the slap on the face with the, with the sandal and so on. Um, and that's where there is... We've, we've all seen a, a photos of Mount Everest, which is very, very often... The peak is very, very often covered in clouds. You know? But then sometimes the clouds open up, and then you get like, oh, oh, look, look, look. The clouds have opened up. Look, right there you can see the, the very summit of Mount Everest. Oh, it's going. Oh, okay, it's gone. But for the moment, you actually saw it, you know. Uh, and then the clouds come over again. That tends to be what happens when people receive pointing out instructions. And as I really emphasized about two days ago, this is not the same as simply having some hedonic pleasure, like a great ocean voyage or a wonderful meal. Not the same. Not the same at all. But it is transient. But it's so, it get, it's, something is sown. Something is sown in the mind stream that you now have seen something you cannot and do not want to expunge from your mind stream. This kind of a hook, a wonderful hook, you know, that you know something now you didn't know before, and you know where to look. So that's another way. The challenge then, if one has received pointing out instructions and had a very, very meaningful, something of a breakthrough experience, the challenge then is how do you bring that forth again? How do you sustain it? How do you dwell in it? How do you sustain the view through all daily activities and not simply have a marvelous memory that you're wondering, how do I get there again? Do I, should I just buy a whole bunch of airline tickets and just follow the Lama all over the place and get my next fix? Or do I start cultivating some foundation that I can actually you know, sustain it myself? So that's a challenge. But I think it's a wonderful thing, frankly. I think it's a wonderful thing that such Lamas are giving point down instructions. They inspire so many people. They really do. And you can't put any price tag on that. You can't say, oh, it's worth this much. No, no, no. Beyond. Right. It's not the only way. Not the only way it's happened historically. Sometimes people will be, number one, they'll prepare the mind, cultivate the mind. They'll be studying. They'll be reading. And especially when, it, when you have an oral transmission, have oral commentary, and you're reading something, it's kind of full of life because you receive the transmission and the commentary. And so it's really not more like, it's more like an eye-thou relationship with the text rather than just reading a book, you know, it's dead, and it's just, you're just plucking things from it. It's more like a conversation. You know? and, the, and you read it twice, and you read it five times, and ten times, and twenty times, and the conversation continues. It's not a broken record. You're not getting the same thing, unless you're not practicing. If you're not practicing, you may get the same thing. But if you're practicing, and you keep on coming back to the well of teachings by, you know, by great adepts. There's so many, I won't give names, there's so many. But you may be reading, having prepared well. And as you're reading and then you set it down to go into meditation, you may have a breakthrough right there without a lama catalyzing it just by drenching your mind. Going there, you know. And then there's the approach that Padmasambhava takes in natural liberation. And that is without necessarily having been introduced to the view, either by way of pointing out instructions or by way of having you know, really significant textual instruction, oral commentary and all of that, uh, just, number one, purifying the mind, one way or another. There's no one and only way, you know, we've had that conversation. 
They're the classic preliminary practice. They're very good for many people. Other people leave them cold. What can you do? Scold them? You really should like doing prostrations. You really should like doing... What are you, what are you, what are you supposed to do if people don't want to do them? So you're a loser, get out, find another tradition. Or be skillful in means. And, well, maybe the four measures will work for you. Maybe bodhicitta, more, maybe reading bodhicitta Maybe, you know, maybe some shamatha could be helpful. Maybe there's all kinds of things. There's so many ways to purify the mind. So many ways to accumulate merit. That it's wonderful that we have this kind of format of the preliminary practices. And it's also, I think, incredibly important not to be rigid about it, as if that's the only way. Otherwise, the Buddha would have gone to Sarnath. And say, okay, everybody, hit the deck. 100,000 pre- 100, prostrations. Get back to me when you're finished, and I'll teach you the Four Noble Truths, but not until you've finished. You know? He didn't do that. You know? So, different ways. Different ways. But Padmasambhava's approach here is purify the mind one way or another. Develop some inspiration, momentum, merit, whatever you call it. Then he takes you right to... But actually, I was just checking the text that I translated the whole preliminary section, all the detailed, detailed, like, I don't know, 80 pages of teachings on the preliminary practices, those aren't from Padmasambhava in natural liberation. They're not from Padmasambhava. Those were by a disciple of Kamalingba, who lived in the 14th century, and they were added on, which is a good thing, but it wasn't taught by Padmasambhava. Padmasambhava starts with Shamatha. He must have forgot something, right? And of course, there are just different ways of different different ways of approaching. There's so many different ways. Imagine if a person had achieved shamatha and generated authentic bodhicitta and had some realization of emptiness. Right? And then came to receive Dokshin teaching. Do you think that do you think the Lama would say, Oh no, you merely have bodhicitta and realization of emptiness shamatha. You're not ready. Hit the deck. I want to see hundred thousand prostrations. Might say that, but might not. You know? So there it is. There is multiple approaches to it. But the approach Padmasambhava takes here is purify the mind and then go into shamatha. And if finally, when he comes to that shamatha without a sign, he says, here's the place. You're going straight into shamatha. Right? If you go straight into shamatha and the practice remains shamatha, then you'll discover something called the substrate consciousness. That's not small change. That's not trivial. Not emptiness. It's not rigpa, but it's not insignificant either. But, as he says, doing the same method, exactly the same method, you may cut right through and realize Rigpa. In which case, we've called it Shamatha without a sign, and it turns out to be Dzogchen meditation, because it did what Dzogchen meditation is designed to do. So the view may then come not from pointing out instructions, not just spontaneously, not from very extensive reading and reflection, reading and reflection, the teachings of, of Longchen, Rapchamba, and so on. It may come right out of your Shamatha practice. And then the view emerges from the inside out, and then lo and behold, you come out of your meditation and you're viewing reality from the perspective of Rigpa. That too can happen. So there may be many other ways as well. I don't know, but I thought that was a nice short list. Okay? Good. Anything else coming up? Yes. Emerson. Thank you. In your instructions about um, observing the length of the breath, be it a long breath Mm. or a short breath, I'm having trouble not preferring short breaths to mm-hmm. long breaths because Go ahead. just because as you've talked about the as as your meditation progresses yeah. and as you calm down then your breathing gets shallower and shorter yeah. and shorter. Yeah. So I'm trying to you know 
have equanimity right. between long breaths and short breaths. Yeah. But right now, I'm really thinking, but ooh, short is if, better. If this yeah. were working out well, I would have shorter breaths. And when I have shorter breaths, I'm going to keep them. I'm not going to give that up. Um, I totally understand. And I'll give a nice parallel. Uh, I think probably many, I'm sure many, and perhaps all of you have received teachings or the podcast or whatever unsettling the mind is natural state. So there's no secret there. You start out, it's like a cascading waterfall, it goes to a mountain brook, it goes to a river through the valley, it goes to the ocean unmoved by waves, and it winds up at Mount Meru, right? And so you know what's supposed to happen. And as just the whole, the volume of thoughts, images, all the turbulence, quiets down, quiets down, quiets down, and then it's quiet. And all you're left with is the empty substrate, devoid of activities of the course mind entirely. So we know that, right? So when you're doing the practice, same thing, right? If my practice is going well, then I'll have fewer and fewer. And then, boy, I'm making progress. Good. I've, I've scared them all. I've scared them away because I'm looking. Good, you're quiet. You know, it's so easy there. But that's, but that's grasping. That's grasping. And so that's why I made the point this morning, and I made it during the session so you couldn't make notes. And that is, if you're doing settling the mind as natural state, and you approach it with that preference, that, well, if the practice is going well, I'm going to have fewer and fewer thoughts, emotions, memories, images, and so forth. It's all going to calm down, because that's the nature of the path. And then you, you exert that little bit of influence, of preference. Then you're not settling the mind as natural state. You are suppressing the mind, which means you're not doing the practice at all. You're just doing it wrong. Right? In which, case, in which case, they're not going to deliver the goods. That's not how you do that practice. right? And so you recall, if one, hypothetically, and probably happens on occasion, uh, one comes to the practice with just a glowingly serene, benevolent, compassionate mind with virtually no mental afflictions. And there are people like that. And they go to this practice. I'm hypothesizing here, but I think it's very, very possible. They sit down, and they're just going to find from day to day to day, less and less and less, <laughs> Less and less, you know, volume of activities of the mind. Very few spikes, the upheavals. Very few, because they're just, they're just not bringing much in the way of obstacles, uh, you know, obscurations and so forth. And so they're not having any big upheavals of depression and lust and blah, blah, blah. It's just kind of getting quieter. And then they achieve shamatha. That delightful um, autobiography by Shapkar, Shapkar Rinpoche, that Machu Ricard translated, lovely translation. It was one of the most exasperating delightful and exasperating at the same time, accounts I've ever read of somebody practicing shamatha. You remember? He went into solitude, great Dzogchen master, right? He went into solitude, and he said, then I went off to practice shamatha. I went into solitude, I practiced shamatha, and, uh, and I realized bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality. <laughs> Could you say that really slowly, please? <laughs> Unpack a little bit. How was it? Uh, did anything happen in between? You sat and you achieved. Vini vidi vici, you know. I came, I saw, I conquered. Julius Caesar, what, conquering someplace? You know, like, okay, that's cool, but like for the rest of us, it's a bit more complicated. You know, have a really pure mind, it's simple. Right? But most of us don't have that. So the authentic practice then is that you don't try to calm the mind, you don't try to mess with it, modify it, make it calm down. Because that's the whole idea, you let it be. And that means that sometimes you can have some really spiky days, big upheavals of weird stuff happening in the body, and that's what should be happening on that day. 
And other days it's going to be emotion. And other days it's going to be boredom. And other days it's going to be lust. And on other days it's going to be bliss. And other days it's going to be faith and gratitude. And that's what's supposed to happen. And then you're there all the way through it. Let it be, attending, attending. And that's how it happens. That's how the mind heals. That's how all these blockages in the psyche are emotional blockages, suppressed mental afflictions, trauma, tra memories of trauma, and so forth. That's how they re re release themselves. Not by being suppressed or steamrolling steam ro steam them on the way to shamatha. In that practice, you let it all come up. Be present with it without revocation. Reify it, you're stuck. But if you can just let it be and release itself, that's how it happens. But that means even there at way up on stage six, which is pretty darn advanced, you're going to have the biggest upheavals of your whole trajectory. I mean, you've read it. You know, it's going like better, better, better. And then it seems like you fell into a, you know, into a, into a crevasse when you hit st stage six. You're like, well, but that was worse than stage one. You know, like, how can this be happening? That's because you're dredging deep. Much, much deeper than stage one, two, three, four. Much, much deeper. That's why you're bringing out the deep stuff now. But if you can get beyond that, and not by suppressing it or turning it back off, you know, but allowing it all to flow out, then from seven on, I guess, it's, you don't have so many, you don't have the big upheavals. Then the challenge is subtlety. Because the, the, the imbalances from then on, it's just subtle excitation, subtle laxity. And that you need to be really sharp. That's where some people stagnate, but not because they're having a bad day. It's just that they, it's really super fine-tuning, really fine-tuning. It doesn't take a lot of effort. It takes a lot of subtlety to recognize subtle excitation, difficult but not extremely. Subtle laxity, that's really difficult. Really difficult not just to settle there and say, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm, this is good. You know? And then you just you hit, a, you hit a ceiling. It's day seven. Right? So the parallel is very strong. I know I'm giving very long answers, but I think these are very... Two very rich questions, right? So there's no reason to hurry here. Um, so that was a big analogy, but a very strong one. And that is, as long as we're embodied, the body and mind are profoundly entangled. Every, Antonio Damasio points out, and I think he's certainly right for the waking state, every emotion you ever experience is going to be something, there's going to be some correlated somatic experience in the body. And it's going to happen every single time. Of whatever emotion, sadness, anxiety, grief, joy, surprise, anything, there's going to be something. It's entangled, right? And so what is this to say on the subtle level is your nervous system, Western physiology, first-person physiology, the whole prana system, the whole prana system, that it is so profoundly entangled with or moving together with in, syn in synchronicity, so to speak, with your mental states, right? That as there are psychological blockages that psychologists know a lot more about than I do, you know, but they are certainly there, where you just can't look at something, you know, like, oh, we're going to... The elephant in the middle of the room? Well, psycho that's a, that would be called a big psychological blockage, right? Well, as there are psychological blo blockages, some very coarse, some very subtle, some very deep, that you may only be unearthing, bringing to the light of consciousness in stage six in the path of shamatha. If that's true psychologically, then a very, very strong hypothesis from Buddhism and Hinduism and probably Taoism, because they have their own, their own sophisticated understanding of prana, call it chi, of course, is that if there are blockages in your psyche that can be released through the practice of settling the mind in its natural state, there will be blockages in your body on that energetic level, the prana level. And the prana in the body is related to the breath. Strongly. Sometimes you use the same word. 
for prana and breath. They often do. Right? And so this means that in our bodies right now, insofar as there are psychological blockages, there will be pranic blockages. Pranic blockages, though, can also come not only by having a traumatic experience or what have you, it can also come from injury. Injury. That can clearly... The, 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 pranic, the, the pranic body, the energy body there is also enmeshed with ligaments, right? Ligaments and tendons and muscles and so forth and so on. And so injury could also, or bad habits physically, bad habits physically can also create blockages that are not really psychological, they are more physiological, but on a subtle level, and they too can uh, influence your mind. So we're seeing again and again, I, read the, I follow the news fairly closely, but study after study has shown that just getting good, healthy exercise improves your, your intelligence, productivity, creativity, which are psychological functions. But just getting out and having healthy exercise, that's good. But that's straight physical, total physical, physical, to something that's influencing the psychological. Well, it's clearly true. Does diet influence? Of course it does. And so the point here then to sum up, and our time is just about out here, but it's a very important point, I'm glad you raised it, is that in this practice of mindfulness breathing, it is to the breath what settling the mind in its natural state is to the mind. We're giving it our attention in this practice. We're giving it clear attention, but we're not messing with it. We're not regulating, preferring. We're doing it correctly. And in so doing, the way this should turn out, unless, and there are people that have just impeccable prana systems. Uh, I've heard from the news, so this is hearsay, that Fred Astaire, the dancer, Apparently, people who are extremely adept in yoga, what have you, said he had a glistening prana system. Like he was just so, whew, like that. Like he, he moved and his feet would hardly touch, touch, the, touch the ground, you know. He and, well, Gene, Ginger Rogers, big team. But dancers like that, I mean professional dancers, and some athletes also, their prana systems are just sleek. By karma, whatever it was, some people have really, really nice flow already without any meditation. And most of us don't. That's why most of us are not you know, movie stars dancing on the screen and annoying everybody. And so for most of us, we have blockages in the, the subtle energy system, the prana system. And one way to allow those blockages to self-release, the natural way, self-release, therefore natural, is mindfulness of breathing. But this means that whatever comes up, just as in settling the mind, if on occasion you have deep breaths, let it be deep breaths. If there's short breaths, let it be short breaths. If it's big volume breaths, there you are. You could be meditating for an hour, two hours, and then in the midst of your, your, your session, and you're not freaking out, you're not having a panic attack, the body just wants more air. Don't say, no, 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 he said short breath is good. <laughs> I'm going backwards now. This way. Let it be big volume. And sometimes you'll breathing, be breathing so subtly, somebody outside couldn't tell you're breathing at all. Hardly. And, and you're not doing anything special. For the time being, five minutes, ten minutes, a day, two days, you slip in, hardly any. So subtle. But when you're just resting there, here's my mudra, awareness just resting still, you are aware. But you have to be very quiet. Those subtle little perturbations. Oh yeah, breath is still going. So to do the practice properly, means total allowance and knowing that's the best. And so the trust here, there is an element of trust, as in settling the mind is natural state. But we've known each other for years, so maybe you have some reason to trust me that I'm not a total stranger, right? But this is much deeper trust. Some of you don't, you're meeting for the first time. You know, so why should you totally trust a guy you've never met before? 
No, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. You know. Trust where? You know where. Your body-mind, rooted in Buddha nature. And that's where I really say it. Body-mind, rooted in Buddha nature. Buddha nature there is, the, is the source of healing, fundamental, ultimate source of healing, your own Buddha nature. So that's what you're really trusting. As you rest your awareness in your best approximation of Rikpa, that's what you're doing. Your best approximation of Rikpa, just present, with no objectification, no reification, no excitation, no dullness, just resting in its own place. And from that perspective, just allowing the breath to flow, and then allowing the whole system to sort itself out, and in any way, and, that, and so it's just like you give it ongoing approval. Whatever comes up, short breath, cool. Oh, now it's long breath? Thank you. Deep breath, happy with that. Shallow breath, very cool. Like one of the, you know, like one of the, just whatever you say, just, you're doing so well. <laughs> That's the way to do it. So whatever's coming, be happy with it, including all the fluctuations, because they are too mindfulness of breathing, what the upheavals are in settling the mind. And if no upheavals happen, as you're practicing, especially in retreat, if no upheavals happen, one of two conclusions can be definitely drawn. One is you have an incredibly pure mind, and the other one is you're suppressing it, which means then you'll not go very far in your practice. Because what needs to come isn't, because you're not allowing it, you're censoring it. You have a sensor, a sensor board there saying, oh, 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 not that. Edit that one out. That one goes. Okay, now a nice one. Okay, you can come in. That's fine. But then that's not this practice. Okay? Isn't it cool? I love this. I love the only thing I love more than talking about it is doing it. <laughs> See you tomorrow morning at 9. Enjoy your day.